Hey, everybody, uh, high five your neighbor. Tell them they look delightful this morning. That's a word we don't use enough. We don't use the word delightful. How was Thanksgiving? It was delightful. Anybody's full from Thanksgiving? Anybody just like, I'm still suffering. <laughs> uh, if I haven't got to meet you yet, my name is Matt Cordova. I I'm, get the privilege and the honor of being the the youth pastor here. Man, I just, we're so excited that you came to worship and to chase Jesus with us uh, this morning, especially after all the food and festivities and all that other stuff. Uh, today, we're going to continue in our series that Pastor Amber started called Lineage and Legacy. And here's what we're doing. We're looking at the lineage and the legacy of the people in Jesus's bloodline. So Amber started off by talking about two people that were completely unexpected. She talked about Ruth and she talked about Rahab. Why were they unexpected to be mentioned in this lineage? Well, one, women weren't typically mentioned in genealogies. I think this is cool because I think it shows God's value on women. You know what I mean? Like he, that, that God put it on Matthew's heart, inspired Matthew to put Rahab and Ruth in Jesus's genealogy. Another reason that this is important to recognize them is they weren't a part of God's covenantal people. One was a Moabite, one was a Jerichite, if that's the right word. I I don't know. She's from Jericho. You know what I mean? But they weren't Jews like they they were pagans. They worshiped other people. But God adopts them in, brings them in because they responded in faith to who he was. And then she told us that both of them experienced God's hesed. Everybody say hesed. Hesed. Hesed is another like a, one of the ways that we can break down the word hesed. She talked about how hard it is. It's God's loyal love. Did you know that's how God describes himself in Exodus 34? Is somebody that's full of hesed, somebody that is full of loyal love. Amber crushed that message. If you missed it, man, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Today, I want to talk about somebody special. He's one of Israel's great kings, but here's the thing. He comes from a not-so-great lineage. Uh, if you've got a Bible... Open it up to Matthew chapter one. This is a great time if you have the City Church app to open to our message notes. I encourage you to use that. We're just going to be kind of in different spots in the Bible. Um, if you don't have it, you can get it in your app store. Just type in the City Church Lubbock. Uh, in, in youth, it's kind of cool because I've noticed we say this, note takers are world changers, right? So uh, I, it kind of blew my mind the first time that we started doing that. Our kids would bust out their cell phone. Even Pastor, you can ask Pastor Clayton about this. The first midweek he came in, he's like crawling over chairs, taking pictures pictures of it. But the kids like pull out their cell phones. I'm like, you're going to be Snapchatting during Jesus's word. Like, are you serious? And they'll show you they've got pages and pages of notes. So I encourage you, man, note takers are world changers. You're more likely to remember it. If you write it down, you're even more likely to remember it. If you tell somebody about it, right? How many uh, kids, kids, you got your sheet, raise your sheet up in the air, kids. Yeah, there they are. Listen, I want to tell you, God wants to speak to you today. God wants to use you and grow you. God's got mighty plans for you. So here, let's dive right in. Matthew chapter one, verse six. There's going to be a lot of fathers just giving you a heads up. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Y'all thought I was kidding. Lots of fathers. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Isaiah. Isaiah was the father of Jotham. 
Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. And Ammon was the father of Josiah. Here's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about King Josiah. Will y'all pray with me? So dear Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word. God, and I pray that, uh, man, your spirit would just invade our heart and your word would cut out the things in our life that need to be removed and, and strengthen the things that need to be strengthened. God, mold us this morning. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. 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 So I've, uh, I've had the blessing or the privilege of being in ministry for almost 12 years now in different roles. I've been a youth pastor a couple of times, an associate pastor, a lead guy. There's a lot of things I love about being in ministry. Uh, one is I, I love networking. I love meeting with other pastors and seeing what was going on. It's, you know, it's one thing to know, like you have people in your corner, right? There's a proverb that we like to, it's not a biblical proverb, but it's a, it's a wise saying. It's like, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together, right? If we want to go, listen, how many of y'all understand that as the church, we're called to go far, right? There's not a, a Bible verse that supports Lone Ranger Christianity, right? We're called to do this together, to be around each other together. So during like our time in Panhandle when we were leading, uh, Pastor Clayton was somebody I networked with. And Clayton would come and he spoke at our church. There are other pastors in Amarillo. I was 29 years old when I was leading my first church, right? I had a lot to learn. I still got a lot to learn, right? You know what I mean? But so I love networking. Uh, one of my favorite things like right now is midweek. Anybody come, anybody a part of midweek? Raise your hand if you come to mid, listen, midweek is awesome, right? Here's a, there's so much life that goes on in midweek. Like upstairs, there's, there's a prayer service. Like people are intentional, uh, intentionally prayer upstairs. We're re in, or investing in marriages. We're teaching people how to use money God's way. We're teaching people how to look for Jesus in the old Testament. That's just up Upstairs, like downstairs, there's food, you know what I mean? But there's kid men and like youth men goes crazy in this room. Like I love it. Midweek is becoming one of my favorite things. Sunday mornings, there's so much life that happens in here, right? And then to throw in that youth is taking place upstairs and marriages. I love doing, listen, weddings are, to me are the most fun thing in the world. Like it's so cool to watch a miracle happen right in front of you. You know what I'm saying? Here's what I've learned though. Those are all the things that I love. I've also learned that one of the hardest things about being a pastor is helping people through loss. You know what I mean? Helping people through losing a loved one. Or, and I've kind of come to the conclusion that for many of us, death isn't real until it knocks on our door. It, it always feels like it's something that's really far away until suddenly it's not. And one of the things that I do is in every funeral that I officiate, I always mention one specific topic, and it's the topic of legacy. So what, what is legacy? I mean, when, when you think about what is legacy, well, if you Google it or if you go to dictionary.com, the, the most common definition that you're going to run is legacy is money or property that's left behind in a will. Like that's the world's definition, like the most common definition of the word legacy. Here's the question I want to ask is like, what if there's something more to it? You know what I mean, like, what if legacy is beyond monetary value, beyond property, behind, beyond like physical things that I can leave behind? I like what Mary Gormandy White says. She says, when a person dies, the mark the individual left on the world represents that individual's legacy. While a person's legacy can involve money, the concept of legacy is much larger than the value of an individual's estate. It's about the richness of an individual's life, including what that person accomplished 
and the impact that he or she had on people in places. Let me, I'm gonna put it in shorter terms. Legacy is living a life that makes a difference and extends beyond our time. Like if we're going to leave a legacy, it's living a life that leaves an impact, that leaves an impact in, in, in the people that are in my sphere of influence and it extends beyond our time. So in funerals, what I like to do is I'm like, hey, what is it that you remember most about that person? Is it how they treated other people? Like, did they always notice those that were kind of on the outskirts? Always notice those who were kind of overlooked, you know what I mean? Or was it how selfless they were? They were always willing to go the extra mile to help somebody, to serve somebody. Was it how they just made people laugh? Like, listen, there's some funny people out there, you know what I mean? And when you think about it, sometimes that's what we value the most. Like, hey, no matter how bad of a day I was, they were optimistic. They always made me laugh. Maybe it was how much they loved Jesus. And maybe it was their faith. That's what I loved about them the most. So what I would tell them is, hey, remember what it is that you love the most about them and apply that to your life. Make it a regular part of your life. That way their legacy, obviously they had an impact. If you had something to remember, they had an impact, but that way their legacy would continue on. Like if we're going to be completely honest, like I think we all want to leave a legacy, right? Like we all want to live a life that mattered. We all want to be remembered. We want to live for something bigger than ourselves. And if I can be even more transparent, I actually believe that we're called to. I believe we're called to. And I think by looking at Josiah's life, we can learn very practically how to leave a legacy, even if you come from a rough family line. So last week, uh, Pastor Amber bro, uh, showed us this uh, timeline or this, this family tree of Jesus from Abraham all the way to Jesus. She looked more specifically from Abraham all the way to David. We're going to dive in from David all the way to Josiah. So let's talk about Josiah's lineage, right? Josiah's grandfather was a guy named Manasseh. Let me tell you about Manasseh. He was literally the worst king in Israel's history. <laughs> Anybody want to be remembered for that? <laughs> No, like Manasseh was terrible. He was one of the worst kings. He instituted uh, idol worship to Baal. He instituted uh, worship to the stars. He instituted child sacrifice. This guy was so bold that he put an Asherah pole in God's temple. So a pole to worship false gods and fertility gods in the middle of God's temple. Like that's what he, this guy's known for. He's also supposedly known for trying to destroy the copying of God's word. We'll see that play out a little bit further in Josiah's story. So that's Manasseh. He's the worst. If you want to remember Manasseh, terrible, right? He's still in Jesus's bloodline though. Notice that. Notice that. Then let's go to Ammon. Ammon gets like four Bible verses in the, in the Bible and he's just as bad. He's terrible. Right. Yeah, the Bible says that he followed the example of his father. He abandoned God and refused to do what God asked. In fact, Ammon was so bad. I mean, Manasseh didn't have this happen, but Ammon was so bad that his own people assassinated him. <laughs> Can you imagine how bad you got to be to be like, uh, all right, let's there's a conspiracy. Let's take him out. You know what I mean? And then after they do that, they elect his son, Josiah. Now, if you're in Judah at this time period, like how many of y'all are super excited that somebody else from the same family line, the same family tree is taking over as king? You're like, no, like it's about to be terrible. The last 60 years have been rough. You know what I mean? 50, not five years, whatever. They've been rough. So let's see what the Bible says about Josiah. 
Josiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 1, it says this. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Any eight-year-olds eight year in the room? If you're eight years old, raise your hand, raise your hand. Parents, you ready to be king? No, no. He's like, Mm-mm, don't sign me up. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, and he followed the example of his ancestor David. Hold on to this next sentence. He did not turn away from doing what was right. So this is how we're introduced into the character of Josiah. Josiah was eight when he became king. Um, what I love about this text is it automatically connects him. The, writers was, uh, the writer of Chronicles is phenomenal because he, he connects him to two major characters in this one verse. He connects him to David, and he connects them to Joshua. Why is that important? Because it tells us what kind of leader that Josiah is going to be. So let's see what kind of leader he is. Verse three, it says, during the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. Then in the 12th year, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles and the carved idols and cast images. Jump down to verse eight. In the 18th year of his reign, after he had purified the land and the temple, Josiah appointed Shaphan, son of Azaliah, Maaseah, the governor of Jerusalem, and Joah, son of Joahaz, the royal historian, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. So here's what we see about Josiah. He's king at eight years old. Can you imagine the pressure on, on, on an eight-year-old? You mean, like, if we're going to be completely honest, how many of us are like, sign me up, put my eight-year-old as king. If Bradley's king, I'm moving, okay? Like, <laughs> I love my son, but I am not following that guy. But he is king at eight years old. But this is what we see. At 16 years old, he decides to chase and to pursue God. Listen, for 50 some odd years, God has not been a priority in their culture. But at age 16, he determines in his heart to chase the God of his ancestor, David. By the age of 20, starts to purify Israel, tries to reform, change the direction of the country. And by 26, goes to restore the temple. Now, there, there's a huge concept that we need to grasp, especially in faith circles. And it's this influence is not determined by age. Influence is not be determined by age. Let's be honest. Josiah did all of this without cell phones, Wi-Fi technology, or a vehicle. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're super dependent on all of the... He, listen, he had to use a courier, people. Like, he had to ride it, send it by horse. You know what I mean? If he's going to send a message. But if I'm going to be completely honest, Josiah, in his short time period, has done more than most of us with less. Josiah... And a short time period has done most of us for the kingdom of God with less. What he did have was a godly role model in his family. Notice it didn't say that, hey, Josiah's grew up and he chased his father, chased the ways of his father, Ammon. No, it didn't say that, hey, he grew up and chased. He loved his grandfather so much, so he chased the way of his grandfather, Manasseh. No, it says that he chased after the God of his ancestor, David, right? How is David described in the Bible? As a man after God's own heart. Listen, church, 
We need some good Jesus-chasing men and women in our youth areas, in every church across the globe. We need people that are excited about what God has planted inside of the next generation that believes in them. The example that was set by David uh, it was paved the path for Josiah. Here's some interesting statistics. I'm a stats person. Any stats people in the room? Here's one. 25%, so one in four students uh, live in a house without a father. 20, that's across the nation. 25% live in a house without a father. 33% of students live in a single parent household. And I'm not bringing those stats to throw stones, right? There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, right? That's what the, we know that the Bible says. What I am, the reason I am bringing that up is, uh, is because what if you're supposed to be a David to a Josiah in the church? You know what I mean? Like, what if you're supposed to be a David to a Josiah in your community or a David to a Josiah in the schools that your kids go to? You know what I mean? What if you're the one that helps them see that there is a God who sees them, who knows them and who loves them and they just need somebody to believe in them? I mean, I, and I get it. Maybe you're here. You're like, Matt, I can't do teens or kids. Listen, they argue. They're loud. The sixth grade boys scream like girls. You know what I mean? Like they smell. I get it. But listen, the Bible says this about kids. It says children are a blessing from the Lord. I, I, I was listening to this podcast. It's, a, it's called the Becoming Song Podcast by J.P. Pacluda. He's, he's a big pastor. He's, he, it's really great. It's uh, geared towards young adults. And they were talking about this. They're like, hey, when you get married, like how long should you wait to have kids? And you know, like we used to tell people, hey, take some time, enjoy yourselves right after they get married. And he's like, there's not a biblical mandate for that. The biblical mandate is, hey, be fruitful and multiply. Like after you get married, be fruitful and multiply. And they, so they start asking questions. He gets to this point. He says, the problem isn't how long that you wait or the danger isn't how long you wait to have kids. The danger is how you view your kids or how you view children because God views children as a blessing. So it's a sin to view them in, as anything other than that. Listen, I think when we stop seeing people the way that God sees people, we need to check our own selves. I'm not just talking about teenagers. Like I'm talking about people that are different, people that come from different cultures, that look different, that talk different. I'm talking about when we don't see people the way that God sees people, it may not be them. It might actually be us. You mean, think about this. What is what did God love so much that he died for? It wasn't money. It wasn't status. It wasn't power. You know how important money is to God. You walk on it in heaven. It's asphalt. When's the last time you went to a street and like, oh, my gosh, this street is so valuable. Don't walk on my street. Nobody does that. We just walk all over. It doesn't mean anything. Money doesn't mean anything to God. The most valuable thing to God is people. It's people. Jesus, God loves the world so much. He died for what? People. So when we can't see people the way that God sees people, it's not that they have a problem. It's that we do. Is there something that we need to check in our heart? I like what Shane Pruitt, he's a next-gen pastor. He says this. He says, if you treat students like they're too young to do anything significant for the kingdom of God, they'll believe you. So it, it's, hey, you're too young. Wait, you know, wait like 10 years. Wait till you're in your 20s and 30s. Then you can really do something for God. Like, let's be real. Adults, if you could go back and chase God with all that you had in your teenage years, would you not do it? Come on, I can't tell you how many testimonies I've heard where I was like, man, I wish I, I knew God the way that I do now. 
Well, think about what you're telling kids. Hey, you got to wait 10 years before you can make a difference for God. You know what I mean? If you tell them that they can't make a difference, they're going to believe you. However, if you treat students like they're the church right now called to do significant things for the kingdom of God, they will believe you. The reality is our, like our students in our kid ministry and city kids, our students and youth, they need people to believe in them. The whole, listen, the whole world's trying to get them to compare each other, compare themselves with everybody else. You know what I mean? And based on Instagram, I don't, I don't know if y'all have paid attention, but obviously depression, anxiety are on the rise. It's interesting how social media has been a big part of that. The invention of social media has been uh, on the rise since social media has been created. Did you know Snapchat's the number one app for bullying? No. <laughs> Our kids need somebody that doesn't need, that's not comparing them to other people. They need somebody that believes in them, who sees what the potential of what's inside of them, of how God has created them. Like, have, has it, have you ever thought about the fact that God has used young people throughout the entire Bible? David was anointed king as a teenager. We love David, right? Slaying giants. He, by the way, he slayed the giant as a teenager. Mary, this is a big one was pregnant with the savior of the world as a teenager. Anybody signing up for that? No. Another one that I think of is Jeremiah. Prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet during Josiah's time period. And this is how chapter one opens up is that God appears to him. And this is what he says. He said, God speaks. He says, I knew you before I formed you and I set you apart. You know what that means? Before you existed, before you had shaped, God knew who you were and God chose you. That hasn't changed for you and it hasn't changed for the next generation. God is the one that formed them. God knew them before he formed them. And not only did he know them, but he set them apart. They are chosen to do mighty things for God, just like you are chosen to do mighty things for God. Man, we tell our kids this. It's not about age. It's about faithfulness. Listen, God will use anybody that's willing to trust him and walk and follow him. You know what I mean? If we look at people like, hey, you're not old enough. You can't do it. I'm like, the Bible destroys that all throughout the biblical narrative. Josiah is eight years old. You mean, so God appears. He says, listen, I knew you before I formed you. I set you apart. This was Josiah's response. He says, I'm too young. This, I, I, I'm not old enough. I'm not wise enough. I don't have enough experience. I can't speak. God replies back. He says, listen, don't tell me you're too young. I'll put my words in your mouth. Another way of saying it is trust me and I'll give you what you need. Just a thought. If God is telling the one he's chosen not to disqualify themselves because of their age, then who are we to do the same? Like, who are we to disqualify kids because they're kids? Who are we to look at them and be like, man, you didn't grow up. Do they need to grow up? Probably being in youth. Yeah. <laughs> but does that eliminate their potential? Does that eliminate the fact that they are formed by the king of kings? That they are fearfully and wonderfully made, that his thoughts about them outnumber the grains of sand, that they are chosen and that they are set apart. Does it change that? No. No, it doesn't. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. We love the armor of God, right? When we read that, 
Man, when we talk about spiritual battles, this is the armor of God. You got the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sandals of readiness. Two big ones that I, I think we overlook, the shield of faith and the sword, which is the word of God. Did you know that when it talks about the, the shield of faith and the sword of the word of God, it says, hey, take up your shield, take up your sword. You know what that implies? That you can put them down. If the Bible's telling you to take it up, it is, implies many of us actually are tired, which by the way, if you fight spiritual battles, the way that God tells you to fight spiritual battles, it says that at the end of the battle, you'll be standing firm, not tired. So if you're tired at the end of a spiritual battle, what that tells me is that you didn't fight it the way that God has equipped you to. Many of us, we don't take up the shield of faith. We take up the shield of logic, or we take up the shield of Google, or we take up the shield of our own strategies. And we're not driven. We don't fight with the word of God. We fight with the word of culture. We fight with the word of what I think is best. We fight with the word of my pleasures and my passions. And we wonder why we're tired. uh, We're losing. If we're tired, we're losing to an enemy who's already lost. Y'all catch that? He says, hey, put on the shield of Uh, put on the armor of God so you'll be standing firm. And then at the end of the battle, you'll still be standing firm. If we fight the battles God's way, we're not tired at the end of it. But let's go back to this battle analogy, right? We like this. We like the, that it gets us amped up. Did you know that the Psalms refer to kids as arrows? In fact, it says it this way. Children are a blessing from the Lord and uh, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. Arrows are used to attack people from a distance. Sure, swords and shields, you got to be up in their grill. You got to be up in their face. In fact, if you don't know how to swing a sword, you in trouble. But arrows, you shoot from a distance. What if the most dangerous assault we can have on the enemy is by raising up a generation that knows God and knows that God loves them? Listen, what if you don't got to get up and close and personal with the enemy? Like, what if all you got to do is believe in the next generation? What if it's be a good mom and be a good dad and tell them about what God has done? Here's what I'm saying. The greatest attack that you can bring to an already defeated enemy is a generation that loves God and knows that God loves them. You want to hit the the devil hard? Tell your kids how good God is. Tell your kids what Jesus did so that they could have right standing with him. How much he loved them to leave heaven, come down to earth and take our place. Live the life that we were called to live. Die the death that we should have died. And then defeated the thing that's been our greatest oppressor for all of history. Why? So that we could come boldly before the throne of grace. That's, you want to have an attack on the enemy? Tell the, the next generation that. Breathe life into them. Listen, they may not be kings and queens like in the status of Josiah, but that doesn't mean they can't have the impact that Josiah had. All they need is they need people that believe in them and invest in them and release them like an arrow in the right direction. Listen, influence is not determined by age. It's not determined by age. But the next big thing that we see about Josiah is Josiah responds to God's word. Remember uh, when he was 26, he starts to restore the temple, right? So they start restoring the temple and they actually found a copy of the law, which scholars believe was the book of Deuteronomy, right? 
the book of Deuteronomy. So they bring it to the king. They read it to him. And this is what Chronicles writes in verse 19. He says, when the king heard what was written in the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Now, if you don't know what that means, if you think it's weird to tear your clothes, this is what that means in that culture. When people would tear their clothes in the Bible, it meant that they were mourning and they were, they were desiring repentance or repenting. Does that make sense? If you don't know what repenting is, it means you change your mind. So what happens is Josiah hears the word of God, looks at where his culture is, and hears where God has called them to be, and he mourns, and then he goes, and he's leading the country back towards God. That's repentance, to go, no, I'm running away from God, and say, no, 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 no. God's got better for me, so I'm going to turn back to him. That's what it means to repent. So he does that with the whole nation. This is how he does it. Verse 2. It says the king in 2 Kings 23, verse 2, the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all of the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest, this giant gathering. It says there the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that has been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all of his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart. And in this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So this is what Josiah does. He hears the word of God and it wasn't good. It wasn't just enough for him to hear it. He gets everybody around. And I love this. It says from the least to the greatest. What does that mean? He didn't just get people that had status and notoriety and were government officials. No, he grabbed the slaves. He grabbed everybody. He wanted everybody to experience and to hear the goodness of God. And then he starts to renew their covenant with God. And I love the order. I don't know if you saw this, but he goes first. He renews the covenant with God and then the nation does. It's pretty good leadership for a 20 year old, right? How many of you would follow a leader that goes first instead of just tells you what to do? So at, at, in his 20s, he's leading the nation. But do you remember how I described him in the beginning? It said that Josiah was eight years old when he was anointed king, right? He chased after the God of his ancestor, David. He did what was pleasing in the, in the eyes of the Lord. And then it said this statement. It said, he did not turn away from what was right. I like uh, how the CSB translates it. It says this. He didn't turn to the right or to the left. He didn't turn to the right or the left. That is a reference to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter one, verse seven. In fact, that reads like this. This is huge. You'll see why this is important. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions that Moses gave you. Do not deviate. Another way for deviate is turn. Do not turn from them either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything that you do. Study this book of instruction uh, continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. So here's the context. Moses has died. Right? Moses has gotten Israel as close as he can to the promised land. Joshua is the new elected and chosen leader by God, and he's supposed to lead them into the promised land. And this is what God does. He tells them continually, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Don't, don't be discouraged or dismayed. But here he says this. He says, be careful to obey the, the law that Moses gave you. In fact, don't turn to the right or to the left. Now, I'm a, I'm a Bible nerd. Like, I'm, a, I'm just going to be real. I'm going to get nerdy with you for a little bit. This is a connection to the, them passing through the Red Sea. 
Right? What was on the right and on the left? It was water. It was danger. It was death. God had paved a path into their salvation. This is what he's saying. Hey, listen, if you will not deviate, if you won't turn from the word, the law that God's given you, I'm paving a path into your salvation. I'm paving a way for you to go to, you know, the easiest way to stay on a path, follow the path. You know what I mean? So how do you follow the path? He says this, hey, study the word of God. Listen, if you want to stay on God's path for your life, you have to get the word of God in your life. If you're off in the weeds or you're off in some crazy place, is it possible because you only look at the verse of the day? You know what I mean? And they, they cherry picked like the best ones. Like these are the most liked verses in the, in the Bible. You know what I mean? Like it says, study the word of God. He says, meditate on it. Now, let me tell you what biblical meditation is. Worldly meditation is clear your mind, right? You know what you see with yoga and the hmm and all that other stuff? That is, that is get all the stuff out of your head. Biblical meditation is fill your mind. Well, what am I filling my mind with? The stuff that I'm studying, right? Study the law, fill your mind. Think about it day and night. It's what Paul was saying in uh, Romans chapter 12. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. How do I be transformed? I renew my mind. I take it back to new. Well, how do I do that? I get the garbage out and I get the God stuff in. You want to change your life? Get the word of God in your life. Meditate on it. Continually keep it in your mind. And this last part is he says, be careful to obey everything written in it. Oh, wait, it's not just about reading your Bible and memorizing scripture. No, it's walking it out. So what happens if I read it and I meditate on it and I walk it? Well, he says, only then, only then will you prosper and succeed. So Josiah is a leader like Joshua. And here's the thing that they had in common. They were guided by obeying God's word. Not just hearing it, not just thinking about it, but walking it out. They were guided by obeying his word. Well, Matt, that's Old Testament. Okay, I'll give you a New Testament reference. James says the same thing. The book of James, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine how hard it would be to be the half-brother of Jesus, by the way? Can you imagine, like, James is sick one day, Jesus walks in, and Jesus is like, boom, you're healed. He's like, I didn't want to go to school today, Jesus, thank you. You know what I mean? James is the half brother of Jesus. And James says this, he says, be doers of the word, not just hearers. And this is the, how he, uh, differentiates them. He says a hearer is like somebody who looks at their natural face in the mirror and they go off and they forget what they look like. So he's talking about the mirror is the word of God, right? The word natural is really interesting. It's the Greek word Genesis that should ring some bells for us. Genesis is the beginning or the original intent. So a hearer is somebody who hears what they were originally designed to be. And when they go off because they don't practice it, they forget. How many of you understand that the Bible tells us God's original intent for humanity? It reminds us of it. You know what I mean? But it says, but a doer is somebody who looks into the law of liberty. How many of you understand that the Bible gives you freedom? It points you to freedom. Freedom has a name. His name is Jesus. Right. It points you to freedom. This is the a doer is somebody who looks at the law of liberty, persists in doing it, and they will be blessed in what they do. Persist. That means that there's going to be opposition to you following God's word. Absolutely. You know what I mean? But if I'm persistent and I do it, it says that I'll be blessed in what I do. It seems like throughout scripture, there's a blessing associated with studying God's word and applying it all throughout the biblical narrative. 
studying God's word. So, so Josiah responds to God's word. And because of God's word, Josiah does this. He starts removing and he starts remembering. He starts removing, starts remembering. Second Kings 23, one through 20 is all about the things that Josiah removes. He removes the idols that were established. He removes all the false practices. He removes the idol worship. He removes witchcraft. He removes child sacrifice, the practice of child, uh, of child sacrifices. All of him, basically anything that his grandfather and father set up, he got rid of it. If people were a priest under uh, his grandfather and father because of their bad practice, they weren't allowed to be priests anymore. He kicked them out. They weren't allowed to do those things. But here's the question. What caused him to start removing things? It was the word of God. Listen, the, the, the book of Hebrews says that the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. What does that mean? It has the ability to cut between the good and the evil. It has the ability to sharpen the things in us that need to be sharpened and remove the things in us that need to be removed. Listen, there are things in our life that need to be removed. If you were perfect, you wouldn't need Jesus. You know what I mean? There are things in our life that need to be removed. So because of God's word, Josiah starts removing things. Here's where we mess up. And it's why I love our verse by verse teaching is because we like to cherry pick Bible verses. You know what I mean? Like everyone, I mean, I, raise your hand. No, you don't got to do this. Majority of people have Jeremiah 29, 11 somewhere in their house. It's either a wall art. It's a, a welcome mat. It's a coffee mug. And you're like sipping your coffee like God's got a plan for me. Mm. You know what I mean? Like we do that. Do we not? Do we got like we, we quote Bible verses that that like when they're about blessing, we know all the Bible verses about blessing. We're like, mm, sign me up. Those are for me. The Lord, is, mm, I receive that in Jesus name. You know what I mean? We do that. But what about the Bible verses that tell us about our struggles? Ain't nobody got that on a coffee mug. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody, ain't nobody, thou shall not gossip. Mm. You know what Bertha did today? You know what I mean? Just, <laughs> nobody has that. And then what ends up happening is after so long, when we struggle with something so long, you start to justify it. Man, this is just a thorn, a thorn in my side. First of all, that is a misuse of that text. Paul says the thorn in his side came from God. God's not going to make you carry sin. The thorn in his side was given to him so that he could be humble. Why? Because if we're humble, God can use us. You know what I mean? Listen, this is why you can't justify your sin. This is why you got to get the word of God in your life and be intentional in removing things. It's because Jesus didn't die so you could carry your sin. He died so you could be set free from it. So you can be set free from it. Isn't that what we believe? Second uh, Corinthians says that when we believe in Jesus, that the old is gone. The old, the old me, the sinful me is gone. And I'm a new creation. Ephesians, Paul says, imitate God as his dear children. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. If you said yes to Jesus, that's your calling to put on your new nature, created to be like God. Well, what does that look like? Righteous and holy. Not, hey, carry the struggle and just justify it. You know what I mean? Ah. So what we see Josiah do is he starts to remove everything. And his motive was because of God's word 
and the covenant that they made with God. But that's not the only thing that he does. He doesn't just remove. He remembers. He remembers. Second Kings 23 verse 21 says this. King Josiah. I, I like that. It doesn't just call him Josiah anymore. It says King Josiah. King Josiah then issued this order to all the people. You must celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as required in this book of the covenant. There had not been a Passover celebration like that since the time when the judges ruled in Israel, nor throughout the, uh, all the years of the kings of Israel and Judah. This is, this is huge. You know what the most quoted story is in the Old Testament? What God did in Egypt. He, how many times did you read throughout the Old Testament, through the, 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 the book of the prophets, all of the stuff? How many times does it mention, hey, and don't forget that I, I delivered you from Egypt? Or, or they sing songs to remember what God did in Egypt. That's what the Passover meal was, is it was a reminder of what God did in Egypt, how God had set them free in Egypt. And we need to catch something. Remembering is actually a big part of our faith. It's kind of crazy because I think the devil wants you to forget what God has done in your life. Why? So that when he brings it up again, you'll panic again. You know what I mean? Remembering is a big part of our faith. It's all throughout the scripture. God would do something and this is what they would do. They would build an altar or they would name that place. And when people would pass by, they would remember what God did there. So why does remembering matter? There's two things that I can think of. Remembering matters because it strengthens your faith. It strengthens your faith. How? Well, uh, because when you remind yourself of how God has moved in the past, it gives you faith that God will do it again. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Listen, anybody ever heard the phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle? That's a lie. And that's not in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's talking about the ministry they're doing. He's like, man, it was more than we could handle. We thought we were going to die. And this is what he comes to. He says, but this is what I know is true, that God has moved and God will do it again. So, so you're telling me that when Paul was in this moment, when he thought that it was harder than he could handle, what got him through it was remembering? What got him through the hardest, probably one of the hardest moments in his life was remembering that God has done something in the past. Listen, if you want something to remember, the whole Bible is stories of things that God has done about how God has showed up for those that are oppressed, how God has showed up for those who are broken, how God is near, how he's close. Jesus' promise in Matthew uh, 28 is, and I'll be with you always, 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 even until the end of the age. When we remember, it helps strengthen our faith. Listen, yesterday's victories give us faith for today's battles. Why? Because if I remember that God was with me yesterday, I know he's going to be with me again today. Come on, listen, anybody ever been in a spot where God just feels far or silent? You know what I mean? Can I, can I tell you something? Don't confuse silence for absence. Anybody ever taken a test before? If you're not raising your hand, you're lying in church. How many of you have taken a test and, and the teacher yell out the answers? The answer is C. Nobody. Is it possible that when God's silent, it's because he's testing your faith and he's testing your faith because he believes in you? He's trying to grow you? Listen, remembering strengthens your faith. God has moved. God will do it again. 
God has me. When's the last time you remembered something God did? Christmas and Easter? No, 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 no. He's with you yesterday, the day before, the week before, the last financial struggle, the last marital struggle. You're here today because God has moved. You'll make it tomorrow because he will do it again. The other reason that it's important is it helps you pass down your faith. Remembering strengthens your faith, but it also helps you pass down your faith. In Joshua, they're going to go into the promised land and God splits the Red Sea. They walk through or the Jordan River. They walk through the Jordan River on dry ground. It's a reminder of what God did at the Red Sea as they go into this new place. And he says, hey, Joshua, pick up 12 stones. I want you to set them up and build an altar. And he says this, when your children ask, you tell them what happened here. When your children ask, why would their children ask? Because it's a value in their household. Listen, you want to know what's a value in your household? Skip something and see what your kids ask about. <clears throat> if you miss sports or you miss practice and they ask why you miss practice, you can tell it's a value. If you skip church, do your kids ask about it? Listen, if you, if you make them go to church, if they don't understand why it's a value, if they don't understand that God moves, as soon as they have the option to make the choice for themselves, they won't. I heard, a, I heard somebody say this, what's permitted by one generation is accepted by the next. If it's a negotiation for you, if church is a negotiation for you, if God is a negotiation for you, it won't be a value to them. It won't be. And here's, what, here's the, the problem. If we don't tell them what God's done in our life, we run into the problem that they had in Judges 2.10. Joshua dies, his generation dies, and it says there arose a generation that didn't know the Lord. That's in the Bible. Israel has been chasing false gods for six generations in, in today's story. You want to release your arrows, your kids in the right direction, you want to raise up a generation that knows God, then share how God has moved in your life with your kids. God should be a regular conversation in our houses, not a, a sporadic one at church events or spread out one. God needs to be in our houses. So when you look at Josiah's story, Josiah's done a lot, right? King at eight, pursued the God of David at 16, reestablished a covenant with God at 20, removed the things, reformed his culture, changed the direction of a nation at 20, restored the temple at 26. I love how he's described towards the end of his life. Second Kings 23 verse 25 says, never before had there been a king like Josiah. After hearing Josiah's story, I asked you at the beginning who would follow an eight-year-old. How, how many of you would follow Josiah now? I would. There hadn't been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart, soul, and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses, and there have never been a king like him since. So the youngest became the greatest. The youngest king, probably the most overlooked. And then the youngest became the greatest. Why? Because he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because God was first and God was ultimate. And here's the truth. He may not have had the best father or grandfather, but he didn't let his history determine his future. He let God do that. So there's kind of two closing ideas for today. The first one is this. Your history doesn't determine your legacy. Doesn't matter what you've done in your past. Maybe you're like Judah. 
you've messed up. Maybe you've like Manasseh and Haman and you've just got a, a history. Maybe you're, you're, maybe your idol is culture or politics or money or even your own selfish desires. That's the beauty of the gospel. Like what we see throughout the entire biblical narrative is that God removes our history so that we could live out his story for our life. When you turn to God, when you turn to Jesus, the Bible says that your sin is removed from you as far as the east is from the west. That it's gone, it's taken away. The other is this, that your lineage doesn't determine your legacy. Maybe you're like Josiah. Maybe you come from a family line that doesn't follow Jesus. Uh, Maybe you're surrounded by people that just aren't into that Jesus stuff. Where you come from doesn't determine where you're going. Listen, Jesus' bloodline is full of the overlooked and the people that have sinned terribly. Manasseh's in Jesus' bloodline. Ammon's in Jesus' bloodline. Uh, David, after murdering Uriah, is in Jesus' bloodline. The beauty is that we've been invited into Jesus's bloodline. You you have an invitation into the bloodline of the King of Kings. You have a chance to be adopted into his bloodline. And why, 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 why do we have this chance? Because God so loved the world. You understand that God's love was his motive. That God loved humanity. He He wasn't okay with us being separated from him by sin. And because of God's love, Jesus left heaven, lived a perfect life, was beaten, persecuted, mocked, spit on, put on a cross, and died the death that we should have died because of God's love. But he also rose three days later and defeated uh, our greatest oppressor, death. And this is what the Bible says, that if we believe in him, we receive his spirit, which testifies that we're God's children, which testifies that we're in his bloodline. Listen, if you've never said yes to Jesus, maybe that's what God's calling you to today. This is what the Bible says. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. If that's you, we encourage you to fill out that connect card on the back of your chair and and take it to the back, check the give my life to Jesus box. We want to celebrate with you. Heaven goes crazy if only one person says yes. We want to join in on that celebration. I just want to remind you, if you've said yes to Jesus, you have a new life. The old is gone. The new has come. The old, you are a brand new creation in Jesus with a new future in Jesus. And what you leave behind, that's up to you. That's your legacy. How awesome would it be for us to leave a legacy like Josiah where we're known for going all out for the King of Kings? Let's pray. So dear Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for your word. God, I pray over the next generation. God, I pray that we would come alongside them and see what you see, God. 
every individual, every kid, every student is made fearfully and wonderfully made by you, God. They are set apart by you. They are chosen by you, God. So I pray that every time we see students, we wouldn't see immaturity, but we would see hope for a future. That every time we would see them, we wouldn't see somebody that lacks knowledge, but somebody that's maybe the next Billy Graham or the next big evangelist, God, that we would have hope and we would dream alongside them, God. I also pray that we would learn to respond to your word, that we would get your word in our life, that it would fill our thoughts, it would fill our hearts, and we would follow it. God, show us what to remove. Give us the strength to remember. God, and help us, help our legacy be that we were so in love with Jesus and that that was all that mattered to us. We love you. It's in your name we pray.